1: Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, graduate assistant, Lawson Medlam. All right. Well,
0: our last episode, we talked about this ever-evolving, quickly evolving artificial intelligence and how it's uh, starting to shape our world in different ways, especially with written work, I guess, but uh, also in various ways of solving problems. And we got into the normal stuff of robotics. And we all know most of the cars made today are made with robots and, you know, ever going towards machines and away from labor. And so I think one of the interesting issues we have to grapple with is the transition to that. I think in that episode last time, I claimed that this will be a period of abundance and everything will be cheap uh, if, as Dr. Jacobs said, the marginal productivity of capital is infinite and a a computer can basically do just about anything. To me, I I like that idea. We're we're left with uh, us being able to live our lives as we see fit and develop relationships and maybe closer the human part of life might become more thick is what i speculate and i I think that can be a good place for us to be in however what does the transition look like so as automated driving with truckers that that was a recent hot topic in the last couple years if we eliminate all the truck driving jobs immediately because uh, trucks can drive themselves or drones are dropping in our packaging and whatnot what does that transition look like so we have people that become unemployed. And and unemployment, of course, sucks for the person who lost their job. But as we learn in macroeconomics class, that all unemployment is not bad. Rich, diverse, evolving, growing economy is going to have certain types of unemployment where some skills are becoming obsolete, i.e. the truck driver's skills, and it'll lead us to other areas, other industries will emerge from there. And in theory, those people will go get a job in a different industry. And so I think the the rub here is if there's a large swath of of people who lose their job at one time, is there going to be that next job if if all jobs kind of look this way where automation is replacing people? Will prices decline quick enough so that we can comfortably live on $13,000 a year, just to pick a number out of the air for fun. You know, that housing prices are $200 a month instead of $1,200 a month and grocery store, you can run there and buy a whole shopping cart full of groceries for $10. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I really believe that's effectively where we will be at some point. Um, But what does this transition period look like?
2: Yeah, I mean, when we've had these things happen in the past, I think like the key to transitions has been bribery. <laughs> <laughs> and like, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I actually think like to a certain extent, it probably is a bad thing. But what pops immediately into my mind, because I've done some research in this and writing on this, is like the shipping containerization revolution. Mm -hmm. And so there used to be an industry out there for dock workers. I'm sure there are still dock workers nowadays, but it was a very robust industry. We had like dock towns. And so there would be whole neighborhoods of people who, uh, you know, lives near uh, shipping ports and their profession would be to wait at the shipping port, you know, the day that ships were coming in and kind of just take that work to unload and reload ships not really on a permanent employment basis, but just on a day by day basis. a long longshoreman. it would be the name of the profession. And so this is a job that was really common. You could still see some of these neighborhoods in like New Jersey, for example, you know, had a really robust uh, longshoreman industry. But the profession basically doesn't exist anymore. There's probably some, but the reason it doesn't exist is we have now shipping containers. And so it used to be the case that when you shipped things, you would just like kind of have random, you know, containers, crates, things bundled together, tied together, and kind of set on the ship and basically no clear order or anything like that. You would just kind of put a bunch of things on a ship and send it off overseas. And so you'd have crates, you'd have like bundles of food tied together. And the point of the longshoremen is, well, you have all these individual packages and you need the longshoremen, like hundreds of them, to unload the ship within like a reasonable amount of time. And there's was a longshoreman union and everything. This was a really robust field. And then along comes standardized shipping, you know, shipping containers. uh, Listeners, you've probably seen, you know, when that container ship, the ever given or whatever, was like stuck in the Suez Canal last year. That's what most of shipping looks like nowadays. It's a big old ship with like thousands of containers, you know, stacked on top of each other, really can transport, you know, things between countries. It's so robust that it costs like less than $5 per tonne. Now to ship things that's how advanced our technology is with shipping and so what happened was how how this industry was displaced wasn't like the longshoremen just gave up and were like okay we're gonna you know just lose our jobs and go somewhere else there's actually a lot of legal fighting about you know container shipping whether it was allowed and ultimately what happened was a bribery scheme that certain longshoremen would be allowed especially the leaders of the unions would be allowed to keep their jobs and they would get a job as a crane operator And they get paid a lot of money to operate the crane that brings in these uh, shipping containers. And actually, nowadays, in theory, you don't even really need crane operators like technology can do most of these things by itself. But we still have crane operators. They have really big salaries. They have really strong unions. Can't get rid of crane operators. It's not very easy. And so kind of the privilege uh, was taken from a large group of people concentrated a little bit into like a few very nice positions and and given to those so bribery is often how we see these things go away now maybe that's not the best way it's a different question but i that's what i see happening is you know instead of having you know hundreds of truck drivers we'll have like a a truck fleet manager who's going to sit in front of a gps and like look at the trucks and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that
0: yeah, the, this idea of creative destruction, that uh, that we have people that are ever churning in and out of positions. Since you brought up the longshoremen, it made me think that now those longshoremen do other things, but there was a whole industry now here in Kansas. We are kind of a central hub for those shipping containers to come to the intermodal facility where they eventually get placed on trucks and go elsewhere. And what's evolved in Edgerton is uh, massive amounts of storage facilities. And so that has caused that whole area to boom. Mm -hmm. And within those storage facilities are now the kind of the longshoreman job is the way I envision it, is that they're taking those shipping containers, they're unpacking them and putting them into shelves or wherever they need to be in the warehouse with proper inventory so that we can all jump on our phones and order up a pair of shoes and then it gets picked by probably a robot. Maybe there's less people, but those that was a an, uh, an area that emerged from that innovation. And that's just the way economic growth is. It's just a function of it. I'm not sure you made all the truck drivers feel real happy yet. I'm not sure I have an answer either of what that intermediate space looks like of when they're unemployed and they're 45 years old and they have bills to pay and now they're faced with working at mcdonald's for oh yeah i don't think they do
2: end up happy at least a lot of them uh there's probably ways that we could imagine arranging society such that they'd be happy but like actually putting that into practice art just like the longshoremen again not all of them got paid off uh the longshoremen it's not like they all ended up as crane operators a very small but influential sect of the longshoremen industry got paid off to basically throw the rest of the industry under the bus it's one way to interpret the history. Uh, I, I could be wrong on it, but that's kind of how I read
3: things. So, but Justin, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that I think you guys are doing two different things, one of which makes sense and the other which of which I think is really hand wavy. <laughs> and the thing that I think that you're doing right is explaining like what has happened in the past when there has been technological progress, right? And somebody in the past, you know, if you talk to somebody in the 1900s, they might say like, oh, in the future, robots will make everything. Right. And they might say in the year 2023, robots will make everything. And it is kind of true today, if you look around, that we do, you know, robots make cars. Uh, robots are doing the jobs that longshoremen used to do. Right. But that doesn't mean that because um, robots do a bunch of stuff that unemployment has, uh, you know, is through the roof across all sectors because of that. Now, so what you said about all that stuff is fine. But the premise that Russ was talking about going in was that AI is going to be do, be able to do everything, right? And I, I don't, I think that is some kind of hand wavy stuff that like is some singularity-ish Ray Kurzweil We just have to wait and ai will will be able to do everything i I don't think that's the case i think what we will see is just kind of a slow kind of accelerated process of what you guys have been describing so far and the way things have worked in the past where sectors slowly one by one get taken over or uh, automated and those sectors can get bought off what i don't see happening is this kind of singularity where All of the sudden, AI is going to be able to do everything better than anybody else. And that is, I think, what would be required for this kind of scenario that Russ was talking about in the beginning, which is that, you know, it'll just be this like economy-wide AI is doing everything for us. And, you know, what do we do then? Mm -hmm. Because I think that just like we talked about in the last podcast, and we're saying, well, look, the fact that you can, you can have a replica of the David That actually didn't decrease the demand for the original David. I think there are things that we think AI might be able to reproduce that it turns out that we actually do. And you hinted at this in the beginning of the podcast. We do actually evaluate kind of interpersonal stuff enough to make it the case that that we will always have enough demand for these kind of interpersonal goods and services that it's not going to be the case that we all just... Have nothing to do anymore.
2: I do wonder if that's enough though. So th- th- like this is another interesting question is like, you know, I didn't start doing like work with my hands until I was like now. Right. Like, that's when <laughs> you I mean I-, I worked as a lifeguard and worked at a grocery store and these sorts of things. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. But like I didn't start like fixing things and building things and trying to make things like physically till like now in my life. And it is like a very fulfilling thing to do, like to f- to finally fix something yourself or to like you know finish a wall or like that that material progress that you see in the world i think it's really valuable and it's actually kind of hard to replace i think and so this is maybe where like the problem gets very difficult is that we could imagine all sorts of like service sector jobs and i think that's basically what's happened like the longshoreman by the way you know, as an industry, it's not like we just have a bunch of unemployed people who would have been longshoremen. No, like Russ pointed out, they people from that industry have gone on to do other things. Now, not every person in that industry lived to see the day that they got a new like career or something. But a lot of these jobs end up being like service industry jobs, like dealing with people, having conversations. And that sort of work, I think, is actually not super fulfilling, especially to a lot of men. That's what I I think is that like this, the service industry, uh, working with people rather than working with things doesn't tend to be a thing that like the average man enjoys. It's not true of all men. Obviously, I'm a professor. I enjoy working with students. And so that's not completely true of everybody. But yeah, I, I wonder if we aren't losing a type of work, even if we don't lose everything. I agree with you, Justin. We probably won't lose everything. But if we lose a type of work that's really valuable, what happens then?
0: So I like your point, Justin, and I think it's true. I kind of have an analogy of climate change that's kind of similar that yes, climate's going to change. Climate is changing. It's cold out today. It's warm. We can have fights on whether it's, you know, what all is happening. But I think that process is going to be slow enough that we can adapt to it. It's not like instant flood, right? Where all of Florida is underwater. And I, and I think that's maybe the point you were making, which I think is a good one that AI is not going to just take over in one fell, let's I hate to use the word disaster, but well, it's usually it's, one fell swoop. It's called this the singularity
3: is what these people postulate. Singularity of that. that okay, sure. This, yeah, yeah. This point from which you can't go back and which everything will happen all yeah. at once.
0: No, I think that's a good point. And there'll, there'll be adjustments. And so and this looks like a good spot for a break. So as a cliffhanger, I still want to push the issue then, even if the transition is somewhat moderate or, or slower. Maybe we'll have some events where a large swath of truck drivers will you know lose their job quickly. Do we need to think about increasing uh, some sort of social safety net, employment benefits? Do they just continue on the way they look? Some people would like to see those changed already. Obviously, uh, President Biden extended benefits when COVID happened. Uh, Let's not call that a singularity event, but a big event that happened. And so do we leave it at the discretion of policymakers or do we try to make something that's a little more fixed in place that people can kind of bank on if their industry happens to be the first industry that gets hit? So let's explore those topics when we get back. We'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. This spring, we have an awesome uh, PPE League going on where it's philosophy, politics and economics being discussed among various colleges and universities around the nation. This is all gonna come to fruition with a national championship in Kansas City, our first ever. We hope that you'll like to support events like this and we can keep young minds being sharp and ready for today's world. All right, so we're back and I think we're back to the same policy type of question. You know, do we we have the government intervene in in some way to create safety nets to help protect the status quo? I think everybody in this room is saying we shouldn't have policies to keep it from happening. Like Peter was saying, like, uh, let's pass a law that doesn't allow container ships to come into our port or container ships are illegal or something in our country. So as AI evolves, I, I don't think we, I know for sure I'm willing to embrace all types of advances that help productively without breaking laws so i think that will just i mean it's probably the economist to me that will think you know there's going to be other industries that allows us what i use in class is pizza and beer production possibilities. If there's a new pizza invention, do we get to drink more beer? And the, most of the students are like, no, of course. Well, why would a pizza machine or a pizza oven help make more beer? And the question is, or the point is it frees up resources so that we can actually have more pizza and more beer when we have advances. And that's really exciting for the economy that we can have advances in all kinds of weird areas that mean nothing to you personally, but it allows you to drink more beer. And so I I try to get students excited about that, that we can have more of everything, no matter where those advances happen or occur in the economy. So I'm all on board for that. But it is a big question in the meantime of should we have, is there a moral obligation, a Christian obligation uh, to help those in need, uh, somebody who lost their job? And so um, I'm still a fan of universal basic income. And I know that that's a offensive thing, maybe to a lot of our listeners as well, but I follow uh, kind of the lead of Charles Murray, who said the only way I'd be Supportive of a universal basic income is if we wiped out everything else, Medicare, Social Security. I mean, it would have to replace everything. And so that is kind of a unicorn in today's world and political area. So when I say I support universal basic income, it probably is a is a moot point the way I would like to see it done. So we might have to start from where we're at and, and then we can get into minimum wage or unemployment insurance or other policies or is there some version of some social safety net similar to some sort of universal basic income that would help work through this transition period?
2: Yeah. Well, pri- private UBI is possible. This is like one thing that we totally ignore. Like the thought is that UBI needs to come from the government. It is completely foreseeable that we live in a world where everybody owns enough stock and company to have dividends pay their way. Like, there's no reason that this couldn't be the case, that you just own, like, there's rich people who do this already rich people who live off their returns from their uh, stock valuation. That's
0: what I teach personal finance.
2: And so if if companies become valuable enough relative to the price of goods and services, because AI maybe makes the companies more valuable, Mm -hmm. there's no reason why not everybody could own enough stock to keep themselves like, you know, completely like this isn't utopian. This is just like, it has happened for some people. It's increasingly happening for people. There's no reason to expect it won't happen for everybody at some point. So I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of everybody having like a certain amount of income that they live off of i wouldn't want to oppose it legislatively but i think it's possible i do think it doesn't get to like a fundamental concern though uh that i i think that there is like ingrained in people a certain desire to work and actually uh, like you know sometimes like andrew yang he's our big like ubi politician guy He's kind of fizzled out i think but still he was the one who introduced this and like he'll make comments and other people make comments like this will give people time to like focus on art and things like that i don't know man art to me does not fill that void i think like work in and of itself is valuable and to some extent like a scary possibility is maybe work is like actually valuable insofar as it's necessary for you to live like maybe it actually is important to have a stake in your own survival and that things don't just fall from heaven and you could be okay without it. If that's the case then we've actually got a pretty serious problem because you know if we get to this world where everybody, you know it's it's better by the way. I would prefer to live in a world where everybody didn't die of start like, you know, you just were able to live no matter what. But they're, like we can't ignore the fact that if work is a necessary part of life and there's no reason to go out and work and no one wants you to go out and work, you know they don't demand anything you have. If that's a problem, then like this could be a problem that we need to think of a solution to as a society. So, or in our own lives, maybe it's a better way to put that, uh, our own communities. So Justin, I'd be curious about your thoughts. And I wanted to know your thoughts about this too, but.
3: So in answer to that question, I just think like if you go back a hundred years and you described what people wanted, out of their life, right, what would make you happy, what your needs were, they would, and, you know, people forecasted this, they would say pretty soon, you're going to be you're going to be able to meet your needs by only working 10 hours a week or whatever, right. But it turns out that our needs, our wants and needs just expand such that it turns out that we end up working. More so, I agree with you that I actually do think work is a kind of necessary component. What I don't see is the fact that work becomes like not something where it's if you don't work, you are going to immediately die. That that's going to make the vast majority of people stop working.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I think people are at least unconsciously cognizant of the fact that oh, actually, I actually do need to work. Like I, I need a project,
0: mm-hmm. um,
3: and so. I'm I'm not that worried about that. I I should also answer your question from the first part, which was like, well, what happens if we lose certain s- sectors of work? And I know you said like, well, it seems like maybe these, you know, traditionally men more more like working with things and women more like working with people, and maybe we're losing more of the things uh, working on things. But I'm not even sure that that's the case. I think what we are what the increase in automation and AI takes away isn't necessarily working on tasks that work with things it's eliminating tasks that are easily programmable and so you know a cashier at mcdonald's is actually working with people right but since that's something that can be programmable we that might be a, a sector that gets lost yeah and even things that like you know traditionally men worked in auto factories right but traditionally women were seamstresses and those are both kind of working with things but both can be programmable Now, on the other hand, there's working with things like being a landscaper, which is more difficult to program or like a tree trimming. Right. And those things seem like they would be very, very difficult for an AI to immediately take care of. Sure. So I I just think that it's not the case that we actually are just losing like is one working on things other than working with people. I think it's it's more Nuance than that. I, I don't yeah. think you were making that.
2: No, no. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good response. And just for listeners, like for, for context, I'm actually very optimistic about the future with AI. I've been nothing but pe- pessimistic this episode. So if you go back and listen to the other <laughs> one, you'll see that I'm more optimistic. But there is like, you know, you, you kind of have to play. I actually think we're in a room of three people who are relatively optimistic in general. So like playing the devil's advocate and pointing out the shortcomings is important. But no, I think you're right. Uh, like, notoriously, it's like folding clothes, right? Is the thing that AI, or that robots are just like not able to do. Yeah. That, that's a working with things thing. Yeah. And so uh, it's maybe not the case, even though it's someone construed this the case that AI is going to work with things and people are going to work with people. Maybe there's no relationship between programmability and the things people uh, mm-hmm. dichotomy. So I kind of had a point to bring up to all you, if we have like a universal income or, you know, no one has to work anymore because we have AI doing all of our jobs how are we going to advance as a society? How are we going to innovate if that incentive is taken away? If we lose that incentive of, of if I create new stuff or work harder, I'm going to be, you know, my wage is going to go up. But if we're all just sit at a universal income, how is our tech going to keep advancing in the long run?
0: Uh, to me, I think it kind of goes back to the fundamentals of humanity that your the idea of human flourishing will be more focused on not how much money can I make so I can buy the things that make me happier seem to give me pleasure, if those things are already there, then our focus turns towards uh, your relationship and playing playing games with your family or engaging with them in different ways, meeting new people. I just think it, it changes the face of what happiness brings
2: when we take the material part out of the equation. I, yeah, that's a good point, Lawson. I actually do think like it's foreseeable that we could have if we could measure progress in like in its speed like we had some speed of progress it's foreseeable that like enough technological advance would lead to a lower speed of progress eventually and i actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing i mean if we've progressed to the point of like it almost seems like you should be more urgent if basic needs aren't being met to advance technology rather than like you know even just like our you know most like first world needs it seems more urgent earlier so it could be a problem but i do think we'll always have some what we tend to see is as long as you're not like actively stopping entrepreneurs, it seems like there are entrepreneurs who like want to innovate uh, totally unrelated to like monetary rewards, right? Like you look at Elon Musk, I know there's a lot of Musk haters out there. I tend to believe this story is about Elon Musk, though, that like he spent months sleeping on the floor of his like Tesla factory. Mm-hmm. Not everyone believes that, but there are people like this, even if you don't believe that about Elon Musk. So he's really rich, but like, it seems like he's not really actually interested in the luxury of being rich. He just like happens to be rich because he wants to do all this stuff. I think we'll keep those people no matter what. Uh, Even if no one has to work for a living, there's still going to be those people who want to push the envelope because like, that's what they enjoy doing. At least I hope that's the case.
3: People are by nature tinkerers too. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of people are, maybe not to the degree that Elon Musk is, right? But I think most people are constantly trying to tinker with their stuff. and like, <laughs> I like
0: that idea uh, of tinkering. Yeah. yeah,
3: I am for sure. There's a, I think there's a book on like the history of American inventors and it's just called Bunch of Amateurs. And that's hmm. the title of the book. And the, it's like that a lot of the, our most important advances don't come from like, you know, the scientists making a discovery. It's actually just like people tinkering around. Yeah.
0: So you bet you yeah, the AI makes your thing and then you bring it home and you're like, Well, it'd be nice if this thing actually did this or a a slight modification. I like the word tinkering or placing it in a different function than what it was originally intended. I think that's always going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I got to circle back a little bit to uh, Peter because you went a direction that I thought was dodging the question a little bit. So I like the idea of uh, private investment. You know, we'll get to a place where we can all have our own thing. I thought you were going to say something like private insurance that we all pay into just in case we have some, you know, unfortunate events happen. Uh, I lost my job and I had a health problem or something. Right. So I kind of want to get back to the either social safety net of, does it need to look different than does it do Or do we just continue on with the way it's been going? There, I, I found it interesting. I think during my personal finance class, I Googled there's 22 million millionaires in the United States. So we have a little over 300, what, 340 million people or so. There's 22 million millionaires. And those are people who are arguably in that place where Peter was talking about. If you've got a million bucks to the good and you're earning eight percent return you've got eighty thousand bucks every year off of your investments and and so that's a Uh, kind of a neat place to be. And so you can even be at a lot less than that if it was a half million even. So I think through education, we can get people to do that. But there's still going to be folks that, you know, the poor will always be among us is what Jesus said. There's going to be people who fall through the cracks through misfortune. It's not because they didn't try hard or they weren't a good worker with good work ethic. Do we do something for those areas? Do we change our system or do we kind of continue to
3: limp along? in opposition to universal basic income the problem i see with universal basic income is that it's just a one-size-fits-all in which case you know the the point of universal basic income as as i see it would be to make sure that people have their basic needs met right but i can think of a group of people in america that does have their basic needs met and uh, based on a kind of Social welfare insurance, and that are, and we've talked about this group of people before in the podcast. It's Mormons, right? The Mormon Church does an excellent job of making sure of its members that if any of them is in extremely dire straits, that the church comes through for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the church is able to do this because the church can actually make some uh, use some discretion for individual cases, right, and say like, you know, we, we actually don't think you need this or whatever, right? Now. The problem with the universal basic income is is that it's by definition not going to do that. And that seems like it's going to be inefficient in the sense that it's going to be giving some people more than they need and giving people some people who need more than the than the UBI less than they need, in which case you're going to have to have something like what the Mormon church does anyway.
0: Yeah, so a couple things there. So the Mormon Church is actually pretty. It's not the law, let's call it, but it's darn close to the law with a ten percent tithe. Yeah, so that's the deal, right? You're paying. It's a tax that the Mormon church has. And granted, some people pay above 10%. But from what I know of the Mormons, I know they're fairly forceful on that. And whether it's through social pressure or otherwise, but I've had tenants that they were able to make their rent payment and the Mormon church has always got their back. So you're right in in that sense. I think the one size fits all, this is the one place the federal government has it right. The one size is with universal basic income, your minimum income is going to be to use the Charles Murray analogy, thirteen thousand bucks, right? And so the government's actually pretty good with that. What they're bad at with the one size fits all is individual counseling and oh well, what what was your problem today and how can I help you? You've got a mental disorder, you've got an alcohol problem, you've got. So I don't want the government getting into those personal things, but they're actually really good at dishing out just money. And so part of what Charles Murray puts forth is that it'll change the face of how we deal with poverty if we got the government out of those personal relationships and just be the money provider. So imagine now somebody falls or is, is struggling. And the first question is, well, what do you do with your $1,000 check per month? That's a good starting place, right? So we have some basic level of money that to, to start the conversation off. And then I think we have a, a pretty well-functioning, flourishing, nonprofit, voluntary choice sector to pick up the personal relationships where the money falls short and that's kind of my personal belief on it but
2: I think a more realistic result would be that society gets rich enough that like rich people can give poor people a stock that will support them for their entire lives I think that's much more likely to be able to happen now what you could say is we could imagine people who squander the stock or people who don't have like the, you know, we could think of people who have learning disabilities or things like that, who are like incapable of handling the stock properly. And like, those are the people who fall through the cracks. But for none of the, the people with these problems, universal basic income does not do a better job. Uh, you actually have the same problems. And so someone who is incapable of handling their stock return, and this world is probably also going to be incapable of handling their checks. Um, you know, someone who squanders their stock could squander their checks. There's no, there's no problem with this you know society that's run purely off capital returns uh, that doesn't also exist in ubi and probably to a greater extent because the government has like some involvement and you know you have political incentives and so i, I still think the more realistic answer i think what will happen is you know when stocks that generate a hundred thousand dollars worth of income a year become like smarties people are just gonna like hands them out uh <laughs> and once they're all handed out uh you're done uh, There's still a few people who are gonna yeah the rest is right poor always being among us and you're gonna have to like work with those people and help them so they utilize those things properly. but I don't see UBI being able to do a better job on any margin than just you know people' personal charity.
3: Also don't think that your position, the Murray position where we get UBI and get rid of all these social services. <laughs> I mean, are we gonna square the circle too <laughs> what, what, what you will get is UBI. And all the social services.
0: And that's the one that Murray specifically says doesn't want to happen. So again, back to my unicorn comment. Yeah. yeah, But we can all have a dream.
2: (laughs) Yeah. By the way, I don't think either of these solutions are feasible in the short run. Like, I don't think we'll all be making $100,000 stock returns in my lifetime. That would be nice, but I doubt it. I'm thinking like maybe 300 years from now that would be something that's reasonable so listeners if you want to chalk me up for that prediction go ahead and try to collect the 300 <laughs> years if i'm wrong i suppose but it's certainly no time really soon i i hope i'm wrong about that i would love for it to be within my lifetime but i just don't think so uh, but i also don't think we're going to get the murray unicorn solution in my lifetime either yeah
0: well that, that's what the, the topic of this episode was to be do we need to change something we're doing now? Or is there, you know, some incremental changes as, as AI emerges and people lose their jobs? Is our current system okay or is it subject? I think I'll just spill the beans here. I think it's subject to corruption the way we got it now because the yeah. politicians have too much discretion, too much pressure to make it turn out to a worse outcome than if maybe it was a little more simplified and fixed again, oh, the agree. unicorn being some sort of basic yeah. income. But, um, I, I don't know the, all the answers. That's why we got them closed. Luke.
1: When we look at these businesses using AI and automation, the, the cost of purchasing the equipment is going to be basically fixed. So once they purchase the equipment, it's lost. And all they worry about after that is the variable uh, cost. And so the main issue I have with some of the policies we have in place right now, is, as, as you were saying, that we need to focus on our system. How is it? How can we tweak it now to get ready for automation? I believe that if we get rid of our federal... Minimum wage, which is our workers' strongest tool for finding work, we will have a lot easier time of finding work once this automation gets to full movement because it's cheap to use automation. And then $725 an hour, use this robot for $350 with electricity. So I don't need another person. So then getting rid of the minimum wage would give more power back to the people. And we could use that as a first tool to deter automation's full domination of industries. And I hope we get to a point where incrementally
0: not increasing the current 725 yes. might be sufficient. Like right now in the United States, I don't know, I guess in other states, if if really the 725 is even binding. I yeah. know here in Ottawa, Kansas, anybody with no skill can go work um, as many hours as they want for t- at least $10 an hour. So possibly if we don't run into people wanting to bump it up to 15. And I think there's been interesting experiments around the nation where... We've seen the effects of that with high school unemployment um, being real high in places like Seattle and and other places that increased it to 15. But in some of those places, cost of living is a lot higher. So it's still maybe if, again, if most jobs you can start for $20 an hour, the the minimum wage is 15. Again, it's not binding in that particular area. But from a federal standpoint, I think keeping it at 725 would be a good start in that direction. Yeah. But I, I Even think, if we don't abolish
1: it. I just think, I think abolishing it allows more freedom for these workers to use their, their body to do what they want. So like some, once we get to the point where automation's fully in our industry or any industry, someone's going to be willing to work for less than 725 to get money for their family, for themselves, whatever it may be. And so I think that 725 is such a floor such a limit on the power of employees that it could be a good start would we'll definitely deflate
2: prices well to kind of I know we're running close but to round out to answer Russ is like a big concern since I I admit that is having danced around it a little bit I think <laughs> um so that's that's no question I think like the answer uh on do ha, do we need to restructure things in a way to handle this change I think the answer is yes I don't think the restructuring is going to be on economic grounds that like, I don't think that's the most necessary restructuring. Like I said, I actually do believe that basically the current motive for charity and the increase in capital returns will outpace the AI concerns. But I do think socially uh, we need to think about like changing our communities to deal with this issue. I do think we need to have a better way to address people who feel displaced I think historically this has actually been one of the biggest failures of like you know the results of creative destruction people losing their livelihoods their jobs uh and what you know how that tends to get fixed isn't even the right word but how it tends to go away as people die uh, like that's what happened to the longshoremen they mostly died off it's not like they all you know found their calling as like coders or something like that right they did not learn to code and so yeah i think our like our uh, i would say on the community level churches and communities i i can't remember i, I was reading i think it was a news story the other day i forget But uh, it was about community leaders and how in most towns in America, no one is able to identify a single community leader, like not like they can't identify a single one. But how do I say this? It's not that they can't identify the community leader. It's that they can't identify any community leaders at all. I think our communities are pretty weak now in the U.S. And so uh, churches, towns, I think the people in these institutions uh, need to start thinking of ways to kind of re develop communities to be more vibrant uh to you know find these people who are you know falling through the cracks especially socially especially with in terms of their own psychology things like that i mean you meet people where they're at and there's just no way to do that on a with a one size fits all solution because you know people are at different places and so that's m- kind of my take on it uh, socially we need some sort of solution and i think it starts with people in their their own communities.
0: One interesting thing that's somewhat related here is in Kansas, we're having an interesting debate right now that we have a tax surplus, so we have a hmm. surplus funds, and I, I found it really interesting that now Democrats, so we have a Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, they're kind of in the and the Republican senators and whatnot are, are talking about, you know, what tax gets decreased. And so one of the moves we made in Kansas, which I think is a good one, is to get rid of the food tax. And so reductions in tax are being talked about by both parties rather than other discussions on where do we spend the surplus is, is usually the the talk. So <laughs> that needs to happen. Kansas
2: is stupid on taxes. Yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah. They, there is some tax reform needed, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's part yeah. of the discussion. And great. my point is kind of related to this is that that was a function of there being surplus. Plus, right? That we can kind of look to make some structural changes, and I I think the food is a good spot where it's it's helping proportionately more people with lower incomes than higher incomes when we talk about uh, reducing taxes on food. And so I think there's other structural changes, to Peter's point, that maybe we could look for that would benefit us as a whole. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. Um, Be sure to forward this along to your friends and family that might find it interesting, as well as some of our other podcast topics. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.